Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some religious horror films, as recommended by Rick Guzman and Chelsea Bennington of Spooky Doings, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about William Friedkin's 1973 horror cinematic classic, The Exorcist. And now... I I can't say I struggled with this one. Um, I, I did think for a while as to what my approach to talking about this was going to be because um, at this point, um, 30, almost 30, wait, what's my math? 40? Almost, wow, almost, no, 50? Jeez, I'm, I don't know. I'm terrible with math. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, almost 50 years after its release, what can I say about The Exorcist that hasn't already have been said, basically. What can I add to the conversation um, that hasn't already been added over its half of a century of existence? Um, And now this isn't anything new. I mean, if you've been listening to me for a while, um, this is not the first uh, classic or, um, you know, kind of film in the cultural zeitgeist, cinematic zeitgeist, if you want to uh, consider it that, I suppose, that that has that I've, I've tried to tackle from a, a different perspective. Um, I've covered Bridge on the River Kwai, um, Persona, uh, Solaris, um, a bunch of films that are, that are, you know, kind of considered classic and important, some of which are in the Criterion Collection, you know, so, so other academic and scholarly minds have already attempted to tackle analysis and reviews of them, and yet I um, have had the uh, the unenviable task of saying, like, well, what, what am I going to add to this already? So this is not anything new to me, but The Exorcist was a little bit different because unlike those films which I was, you know, watching and reviewing for the first time as sort of, um, uh, well, as I said, a first-timer... Um, the Exorcist is a movie that I've seen countless times before and I've loved, and I, I would dare to venture that when it comes to um, a larger movie-going audience, and specifically kind of a mainstream audience, which may not have uh, some art house or um, esoteric um, sensibilities in what they're looking for, um, they are more likely to have seen The Exorcist and to have enjoyed The Exorcist um, instead or, or, or rather than, um, you know, people who have seen um, Persona or people who have seen um, Solars. I mean, those are important films and film critics and film scholars like love those movies and have, um, uh, you know, poured over them for decades. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you go to Middle America, I suppose, have they heard of Persona? Have they seen Persona? Probably not. Um, but have they heard of and seen The Exorcist? Probably. Um, so there, there's a wider swath of, I guess, uh, of, of opinions and a larger audience that has that has engaged with this. Um, and I have uh, always kind of approached it as what, it's one of my favorite genre and horror films, but now I had to kind of approach it as to let me analyze it and kind of break it down um, and what makes it special to me. And, and in my opinion, what makes it one of those films that is classic, that is a classic, that, that has um, 
allowed it to endure and to continue on um, being an important film, uh, you know, almost over 50 or, or almost 50 years after it has, uh, after it was first released into the world. And I, I came to two different conclusions, basically, not two different conclusions, I shouldn't say that. For me, there were two different things that I pulled from it, um, which really allowed it to um, resonate with me, that, that, that makes it a film that I continually go back to and am continuously in awe of. So I want to dig into that a little bit before I hit on the kind of the the subjective, the more subjective religious experience and takeaways from that, if you will. But the, the first thing that I was really reminded of, not reminded of, the first thing that I that I became more sharply aware of as I was watching this, as I was kind of looking for specific things to to pull apart and to latch onto, was um how patient this film is and how it takes the time to lay out its story um, and, and create a, a world and a mood that you can be invested in. So that way, um, so as things slowly develop or devolve, depending on how you look at it, um, th- there's more emotional stakes involved. You are more um, engaged with the characters, what they care about, um, and, and, and to kind of really feel that gravity of um, why... <laughs> why it's a um, an earth-shattering and existential crisis when this young girl um, is possessed by this evil demon. Um, and and it's, it's interesting that that starts from the very beginning because one of the, I believe the opening shot is a shot looking up at Reagan's window in Georgetown and then immediately we cut to northern Iraq and Father Marin and his um, paleontological exploits and, and kind of uncovering, um, you know, this, 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 uh, this, evidence of this demon Pazuzu, which is going to haunt him later. And we spend about 15, 20 minutes there. And then all of a sudden we're back in Georgetown and it's, it can kind of be disorienting. And yet, um, William Peter Blatty with the screenplay and William Friedkin with the direction, um, kind of trust the audience to follow along, or even if they don't, even if they don't trust the audience, because William Friedkin, especially at this point was kind of a dick. Um, at least kind of had the boldness of like, listen, I'm, this is the journey that I'm going on. You can follow me or not. Um, and, and, you know, kind of, uh, makes the film on, on his terms, but it really, it takes the time to, um, lay out the case for why we should be invested in these characters and, um, piece by piece eventually builds it up to this, um, tremendous climax at the end in which there is this kind of, you know, good versus evil duel when father cares and father Marin finally show down with, um, with the possessed Reagan and, and ultimately kind of cure her of her possession. But, um, I was looking specifically at like kind of the time code as I was watching to just kind of see how deliberately, I don't want to say slowly because this film does not feel slow to me, but it is deliberate in how it chooses to lay brick by brick by brick, the structure of, of what this environment is like, what the cinematic world is like. And, um, it was interesting to me that, um, you know, this movie is, if you watch the the kind of the extended director's cut that I did, it's about two hours and 12 minutes long. I know there's a, a, a theatrical cut, and um, the the nuances of the differences between those is, is I, I don't care to get into that. That's a, a different topic for a different podcast, I suppose. Um, but if you're watching the the uncut or, or the, the, uh, the, the director's cut, you know, the version you were always meant to see, it's about two hours and 12 minutes long. In that film, in that version, I should say, 
we're watching for about 30, I think it's about 33 minutes until really the film depicts the first manifestation of something happening to Reagan. That is when she goes into the doctor for the first time, um, and there's that conversation that the doctor has with um, with uh, Linda, uh, um, Ellen Burstyn's character um, about, you know, what could potentially be psychologically wrong with her daughter when he says that, uh, I, I don't want to say iconic, but that memorable line of, like, she told me to keep my fingers away from her goddamn cunt. Um, that that takes place about half an hour into the film. So we're about, let me see, well, let me do my math. As we just established, I'm not great at math. We're about 25% or a fourth of the way through the film before there's even a hint that there is something wrong with Reagan as an individual. Now, we've had little shots here and there of the, you know, the the little, I don't know what you call it, but the, the tablet thing on the Ouija board kind of spinning away from uh, from Ellen Burstyn. Um, we have her, you know, a shot of her in, in bed, you know, kind of saying, I couldn't sleep, my bed was shaking. But this is the first time that we as an audience see objectively, um, without having to rely on the word of uh, Reagan, that there is something wrong. We see it. And yet the way that it introduces it is also with the possibility of maybe there's just something mentally or psychologically wrong with her. So that it takes about 33 minutes for that to even occur. It's about 45 minutes into the film before we then see um, a, a, an outside or a, an outside manifestation of what is going on with, with uh, Reagan screaming because her bed is shaking. And then it's about... Um, um, 50, we're about 50, 53 minutes into the film before the doctors, um, the medical doctors, then see that this is something beyond just medical, uh, medical maladies, basically. This is when they come and she's stabbing herself with the crucifix and she slaps, uh, uh, you know, she slaps the doctor and she's speaking in different languages. Um, and so, you know, once again, we're about halfway through the film before um, there is a, a clear uh, uh um, not congealing, but in which the 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 questions of faith and the questions of, um, or I should say, kind of the 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 realms of medical science and the realms of the supernatural kind of collide. It takes almost about halfway through the film for that to happen, and then when it comes to um, uh, Ellen Burstyn and Father Karras kindly meet, uh, you know, finally meeting for the first time. That's well after an hour. We are well after the midway point of the film before these two people even connect with each other and start having a conversation. And even then, it's not a conversation in which Father Karras arrives and is immediately like, yep, I'm on board for this battle of good versus evil. There's a skepticism there. And there's a skepticism there because also we've taken the time to explore the character of Father Karras, um, the crisis that he is having in the sense of he's losing his faith, um, the, you know, the existential problem that he is having with, uh, brought upon by the, um, the doubts he, he is, he is, uh, facing about the, the health and the well-being of his mother, who he worries that he has left alone and he has abandoned her. Um, he is a psychiatrist. He is a priest, but he is also a psychiatrist. And so he approaches it from an, kind of an objective scientific reality. So even after these two people meet, the film takes time to first kind of explore um, the doubt, the tension between faith and science, and even to, you know, convince him that this is a path that has to be pursued. This film takes its time, and I kept thinking as I was watching this, this is not a film that could be made today. Um, this is a film that could only have really resulted from the 1970s new Hollywood movement, in which studios were 
you know, kind of uh, desperate to, to, to make a buck, and we're willing to kind of give these auteur directors these um, carte blanche to make whatever they wanted. Um, and so they, they had creative freedom to, to make the films that they wanted how they wanted to. This is not a film which is concerned with payoff. Um, you know, I, I believe there's, there's some type of unofficial rule that, like, if you're making a horror film, it's sort of like every 11 minutes or every 11 pages in the screenplay, you have to have a big scare. You have to have that gotcha moment, that, that big jump to kind of engage, you know, keep your audience engaged. And this is not a film which is concerned with scaring people, or at least this is not a film which is concerned with visceral scares, with having things jump out at you and startle you. I mean, yes, in the, the uh, you know, the extended director's cut, there are the additions of certain things which were left out of the theatrical cut. I'm thinking of the spider walk. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the little flashes of, of Pazuzu's face. Those are certainly added in there, but they're not done in a way to, you know, to jump out suddenly. They're, they're just kind of there to enhance a mood and an environment of fear and uncertainty, which has already been well worked on and established. I mean, think of that, that opening sequence uh, with Father, uh, Father Marin in northern Iraq. Um, the way I, I was paying attention to the way that Friedkin um, and the, the, the sound designers kind of use an oral, um, and I'm saying, you know, oral, A-U-R-L-A-L, um, an, a, an audio experience, basically, to kind of subtly unsettle you, um, and, and even and then and using that in conjunction with um, certain shots, uh, you know, and it's it's not anything which draws attention to you, but just I'm um, cutting away from Father Marin to focus on uh, someone in the market or someone uh, someone across the street who's just kind of sitting there and looking, or. Um, you know, a, a character that has one, you know, kind of discolored eye. Um, it's not It's not depicting these people as hostile, but it is depicting these people and this world in which he is working as unfamiliar, slightly unsettling, and, and a little bit distrusting and disorienting for him. And it's accented by um, the sound design and the, the, the kind of the audio experience, not just in terms of the score, um, but I'm thinking about the, that sequence in which there are the three men, uh, I believe they're blacksmiths, but are hammering some piece of, of, a, of molten iron, basically, um, and how before we even see what those three men are doing, we are hearing it, and we just hear this, co this consistent clanging, and, and we're just thinking, like, what the hell is going on? And we are as disoriented as the character is. We are uncertain of what is going on until we see what is happening. And it just kind of, it's this cacophonous kind of environment that just kind of leaves you or, or, or makes you as an audience member on guard because you're, you're just, you're tensing up because of this consistent audio assault on your senses. And then once that is implanted in our mind or planted in our mind as something which is disorienting and and kind of disarming much later in the film when we are introduced to father Marin again when he is given the letter that is basically summoning him to come for the exorcism subtly in the soundtrack is that same clanging and banging which just kind of hearkening back to this intro reminds us of this unsettling tense atmosphere and also reminds us or signals to us that this experience this 
journey that Father Marin had when he was in northern Iraq has not left him, that this is something he has carried with him now and will carry with him until the day that he dies, which, as we find out, is, is, a, is not too long after that. Um, and, and so, and I'm even thinking, like, and I mentioned the spider walk, that comes about an hour into the movie, I guess, but it, it's basically, once again, just re-emphasizing that this is not a film which is concerned with co- with constantly scaring you, but this is a film which is trying to unsettle you and keep you on guard from the very beginning. The you know the iconic um, specific orchestration from this film, the tubular bells. Um, I had a, a a memory that that was a pervasive orchestration that was that was constantly reoccurring throughout the movie. It actually only occurs twice in the film. Once at the very beginning when Ellen Burstein is walking home from the film shoot, so that's probably maybe, what, 15, 20 minutes into the film, um, and it happens, you know, and it does, once again, it is married to sound in such a way where we, you know, we hear that as she is walking down the street as, you know, brown leaves on the ground are blowing and trick-or-treaters are running up the, are, are running up the street, um, and then there's a kind of a visual uh, or, or a parallel between these kids running up the street in costume and then her noticing nuns across the street with their flowing robes walking by and just introducing this idea of, of a haunting contrast kind of, and kind of a similarity, um, an, an uneasy, well, I was about to say uneasy distrust. When is distrust easy? But just um, signaling a, an inherent connection and distrust in these forces of evil which are embodied in these kids in their Halloween costumes and also but also the forces of good embodied in these nuns um, and how we are kind of distrustful of both of them because of the the way that we are experiencing in this visual and audio uh, environment basically um, so we have tubular bells then and then they don't come in again until after the film is done after we have been through everything tubular bells does not come in again until the credits start rolling I was under the misrepresentation, misrepresentation, misunderstanding, or um, I was um, wrongly assuming that it was a regular reoccurrence through this movie, and it's not. It actually only occurs twice, and in um, kind of bookending the film, and that was very interesting to me. Um, but once again, and, and you know, it, it's to re-emphasize and to reiterate, um, this is a film which which takes its time. This is a film which builds environment and builds an atmosphere. Most of the visceral scares in terms of supernatural shit happening occur in the second half of this movie. Like I said, this is a movie which could not be made today because a studio would want a quicker payoff. A studio would want something to engage um, the audience quicker. The studio would want Father Karras um, and Ellen Burstyn um, to sync up quicker, um, sooner, to have those two, those two paths converge sooner in the film. And they probably also want Father Karras to be more of a hero, I suppose, someone who is a bit more blatantly good, uh, or, or, or at least his motivations are, would be a little bit clearer, or his intention or his faith to be a little bit clearer, because they, want, they would want an, a, a story which is more easily identifiable as a reaffirmation of faith and a journey from doubt into, or, or a journey of, of uncertainty into certainty. And that's not what this film is. And that's something I will get at uh, a little bit later when I talk about the, the religious aspect of it. But this is a film which takes its time. 
Um, that's one of the things that uh, I was reminded of as I watched it again. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I think this film is an, endure, uh, an enduring classic because of it takes the time to invest us in the characters and invest us in the experience and subtly unsettle us with each scene that goes by um, to ultimately make that final climax and this final culminating journey just like really really hit hard and really worth it. And so that leads me into the second point of, of why I think this is a really special film, because part of how this film um, unsettles us, but then also uh, part of the experience that makes this a unique horror cinematic experience is the cinematography. And now, you know, when, when we speak of cinematography, a lot of times, um, you know, this kind of be, is, is a joke when it comes to the Oscars, you know, like best cinematography is often, and, and, and best editing also comes down to what is the, what is the, the most cinematography or the most editing. And there are certainly very impressive um, visually beautiful cinematic shots in this movie. I mean, think of even just the cover of, you know, Father Marin um, having stepped out of the cab and he's sitting um, underneath the streetlight with a, a a a light that is streaming on him, which comes from a, an unknown source. You know, the 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 shot itself doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the in, in if you really think of like, well, where is that light coming from? Friedkin, of course, said that he was inspired by a, a, a painting, Empire of Light, which if you've not seen it before, I'll post on the Facebook page. Um, but it also kind of doesn't matter. That shot is so iconic and so beautiful that it, you're not thinking about the source of anything. You're just thinking about what it invokes within you. So there are shots like that which are, which are quite beautiful. But what I was actually very impressed by watching this again and kind of with a more discerning eye was um, Owen Roisman, who is a cinematographer, his approach to this film in, in how he is sort of he takes an objective, almost documentary-like approach. And what I mean by that is, um, I, I don't mean sort of the, I, I mean the opposite of the, the Paul Greengrass shaky cam kind of making it feel like you are following everyone around as though you have a camera in your hand. Instead, I mean more of, it seems like the camera is just has been placed there and we are just observing people as they are. And that starts, I think, with sort of how natural a lot of the performances and the dialogue seem. People talk kind of quietly. They talk casually. There's not a whole lot of dialogue I can point to, which um, is sort of typifying that dramatic monologue in which the film is saying, this is our thesis or this is our character's motivation. Instead, we just rest with these characters as they live. As Chris McNeil, um, I realize I kept calling her Ellen Burstein because I, despite the fact I was watching these yesterday, I kept forgetting what her name is. Um, whether that scene is just Chris McNeil um, fooling around with her daughter or whether it's um, you know, her on the film set, or whether it's her talking to Father Karras, it's just, it's natural, and it, it, the dialogue doesn't draw attention to itself, and that's accentuated by the fact that the camera oftentimes just seems like it's sitting there observing them, and that doesn't mean that there's no camera movement. There is plenty of camera movement, but when you look at it, if you really pay attention to it, a lot of times when the camera moves, it's either a dolly shot or it's a zoom of some kind. Only once, as far as I can tell, is there actually a handheld shot in this film. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the only one time that, that, I, that is very conscious in my mind that, that drew attention to itself 
is around 53 minutes when the doctor shows up for the aforementioned scene in which they see Reagan um, kind of in full possession mode at this point, stabbing herself with a crucifix, slapping the doctor. And that's when the doctors are coming up the stairs and the camera, very, very handheld, is following them up the stairs. And it's sort of the fact that it happens there signals to me visually that there is a shift in the environment of the film, that um, once the the objective, quote-unquote, medical uh, community is observing what is happening to Reagan, um, that moving camera signals to me a shift in uncertainty from a steadiness to a an unsteady hand, basically, from certainty into uncertainty, from stable into unstable. Movement of the camera before that has all been in the service of taking in and observing the world that these characters exist in, whether that's just kind of a slight dolly from, you know, uh, left to right, or a zoom in, a slow zoom, I should say, to focus in on um, a conversation between two or, or maybe more people. And when I say two or maybe more people, what I was also fascinated to see when I was watching this again was how often when there are more than two people engaging in dialogue in a scene, or even just two people, but when there are multiple people engaging in dialogue in a scene, how often the camera has them all in the same frame. And even when it's just two people talking and there's a shot reverse shot, both people are still, for the most part, in the frame at the same time. It reemphasizes, once again, this idea of observing, that we are watching these people converse. We are watching these people interact as they would in the real world. Um, when, uh, when Chris and the doctor are talking about, uh, Reagan's, you know, filthy language, um, the, the two shot is often we have one person, uh, you know, in the frame, we can kind of see their almost entire body or definitely their entire face. And the other person, maybe their shoulder and or the back of their head is, out of focus kind of in the foreground of the frame, which does kind of key into the, the viewer subconsciously, I am watching these two people converse. It'd be different if we just saw uh, close-ups of their face and we just uh, cut back, we cut from one of them to the other one and we just kind of see them because then it kind of, shooting a conversation that way would entail or, or try to imply to us we are part of the conversation. But by putting a person or another person or multiple people in the frame, it subtly implies to us we are outside of this conversation. We are not involved in it, but we are watching it as it unfolds. Once again, this documenting of a thing, not not giving the camera to you and kind of you are invading the space and just taking everything around you, but the camera is showing you this uh, the, the day in and day out life of these characters. There's almost sort of a, a voyeuristic tendency to it, um, not in the sense of, of the camera being hidden, but in the sense of... Um, we are not a part of this world, and yet we are taking in what is happening between these people anyway. When Chris McNeil and Father Karras finally meet for the first time, um, I didn't realize that there's a, a glorious kind of one take, which uh, is about maybe a, a, a minute or two minutes long, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it certainly um, is a lot in the sense of how the shot starts and how it ends, because as they are walking down the street and they're kind of, you know, tensely sort of uh, learning a little bit about each other. Um, it starts with them kind of at the top of a hill. Um, the camera is kind of wide. And then as they walk down, as they are walking down the street, the camera starts slowly zooming in on them until we are close up to them. And uh, there is no cuts until there is the exchange of Chris McNeil saying, so what would a person have to do to get an exorcism? And Father Karras says, I beg your pardon. And then we cut. 
and that edit signifies that there is a a significance being given now to the next line or to that previous bit of dialogue. And then we shift instead then from that that close-up, that two-shot of the people that, that we have been slowly zooming in on, that we have, you know, kind of subtly kind of feeling like, I'm going to peek in slowly here, I'm going to get closer to this conversation so I can hear what they're saying. And then once there's an edit, the next shot is Chris McNeil in close-up, but through a zoom lens in which we see her and the rest of the background is out of focus. Once again, emphasizing that we are far away observing this conversation. We are kind of um, peeking in on them. We're, we're sneaking up that we are not a part of this, but we are seeing, but we are taking in what is happening anyway. Um, and, and just kind of taking this objective approach is really fascinating because it allows us to explore um, rationally um, and kind of without judgment one way or another this question of how do we explain what is happening to Reagan? Because it is very clear. I mean, it's, listen, this uh, this young girl was speaking in, in, you know, backwards English. She was floating off the bed. Um, she was speaking in different voices, which don't belong to her. Um, it's very clear that this woman is possessed by a demon. And so that is, of course, supernatural. Um, and yet, by keeping this objective framing and visual aesthetic approach, it can put us in the mindset of someone like Father Karras, who says, like, wait, 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 I, I need all the information. I need to see what's happening. I need to observe scientifically this situation um, before I can come to any... Uh, any conclusions, basically. And what it does is it allows us to question faith and spirituality and also outside forces. And also it's another reason that I think that this film couldn't, uh, couldn't be made today is that <laughs> despite priests, despite um, invoking Christ, um, God is kind of absent from this movie, um, at least in the sense of there is no clear supernatural intervention from a being other than the demon Pazuzu. So you could even, because the film is, is taking an objective approach once again, it, it's kind of not um, taking sides in the sense of... Uh, uh, well, it's not, it's, not, it's not telling you what you should think or it's not telling you what, what you should believe. It is observing the world and allowing you to come to your own conclusions. Um, a studio, I believe, today would want a clear indicator that a supernatural force for good intervened to save Reagan. And so whether that would be an angel or just, a, I don't know, a, a nebulous kind of beam of light or a disembodied voice or something, there is no clear indication that it is the invocation of God which saves this young girl's soul. It is instead the intervention of a human being, Father Karras, in a way which is, um, I guess, dogmatically, theologically, also not very clear-cut. Because it's rage that, um, uh, and it's fear and it's anger and uncertainty, which um, 
provokes Father Karras to start attacking Reagan, to invoke the demon saying, you know, come into me, take me. And then um, it's ultimately him taking or, or making the choice to take his own life, which kind of puts the puts an end to this. And I, and I suppose you can make an argument that it's very that is very kind of Catholic. I mean, Father uh, Father Karras makes himself a martyr in order to save this young girl. Basically, there is a, a self sacrifice. There is a giving up of oneself in order to save the life of someone else. Um, and and that that sort of that makes sense in the world that this film has established because. We have we have not come to believe when you know in the previous hour and forty or fifty minutes that there's going to be an angel to kind of step in. It's going to be people. It's going to be these people who have who have been struggling for almost two hours. It's going to be them that are going to overcome the situation because we have observed nothing but people grappling with the situation because it has been an objective approach, because it has been a rational approach, because it has a realist documentary like approach. There is only going to be something real which is going to ultimately solve the problem of this exorcism. And yet I remember when I was younger and watching this movie, um, having some real questions and problems with how this all resolves. Because now, raised in an evangelical um, upbringing, both in terms of church and in school, there was this idea, and I don't believe there's actually any biblical basis for it, but there was this idea that there was one unforgivable sin, that no matter how good of a life you led, no matter how much you have devoted yourself to the work of the Lord, um, there was one thing that you could do which you could not undo, which no matter how hard you prayed, which no matter uh, what effort you put in, it was unforgivable, and thus your entire life and 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 um work could be undone by this one thing and i don't know where this thought came from i don't know how i, I don't recall how proliferated uh, how much it was proliferated in my youth but there there was this idea that there was this one sin and i believe having a conversation with a teacher when i was younger the the conclusion was come to that that one unforgivable sin is suicide with the idea being in your final act of ending your own life, there is no opportunity for you to repent of it. There is no chance to say I'm sorry um, for what I have just done because there is no break between what you did and the ending of your life. So you are basically going into the afterlife with this one sin that cannot be scrubbed from your soul or your conscience or what have you. Once again, I would like to reiterate, I believe there is no biblical basis for this thought whatsoever. And also, yes, if you are thinking that is tremendously shitty to, to teach and proliferate amongst children, uh, you're right. Um, it's horrible. Um, it's absolutely horrible and completely disregards um, the psychological and mental um, struggle of someone who would ultimately get to a point of thinking the only way for this pain to stop is for me to end it all. You are entirely right about that, and I. But I should also say that the environment that I grew up in was a uh, was not too keen, or or took the approach of prayer over mental health, basically that you could pray away any of your problems, and that it was only a matter of of, of faith um, to overcome whatever difficulties that you were having. So that is wrong. That is objectively wrong. I want to put that out there. So I'm I'm not saying there is any 
credibility to that thought, but just that was just the thought that I grew up with. So believing that and then seeing this movie in which um, this this priest throws himself out of a window and and chooses to take his own life to save the life of this young girl, it, it raised some questions in me. Um, and yes, he does have his confession at the end. Um, so you can say like, well, you know, dogmatically, everything should be fine. You know, he 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 repented before he passed away, and so he was absolved of his sins and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it still was like, you know, as a young as a younger human being, I wanted to see something which was more clear cut, morally right. Um, I wanted to see that that sign of. Um, you know, in the end, it was Christ that saved this young girl. In the end, it was very clearly the forces of good which triumphed over the forces of evil. Um, I wanted something which was neater and cleaner, basically. But that film doesn't, this film doesn't give that to us. Because this film has, once again, as I said, taken this realist, objective approach to these people, to these people who are flawed, who are not one way or, or the other, to these people who are struggling very much with the reality and also um, not coming to, to any clean conclusions, basically. And the film doesn't come to any clean conclusions. We know that Reagan is, 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 is no longer possessed. She seems to have this inherent um, um, fondness now for Men of the Cloth as she kisses the father at the end because even though she doesn't remember, she claims not to remember the possession, she seems to have this imprint in her that these people are good. And yet, there's no real existential answers. We know what happened to Burke. We know what happened to Father Karras. We know what happened to Father Marin. We know that there is no longer a crime that has to be investigated. But we don't know why this demon decided to attack this child. We don't know the fate of Father Karras' immortal soul. Um, but we do know that near the end of it, he did come to some conclusion. When he is, you know, after Father Marin throws him out of the room, basically, and he's sitting there by himself, and Chris McNeil comes up and says, is it over? And he says no, and she says, is she going to die? And that seems to strengthen his resolve. He looks at her, he says no, and he gets up and he goes back into that room because he recognizes at least... The way that he can help overcome the guilt he had of, I should have done something for my mother. I should have been there. I should have done something. He's realizing, I am here and I am now. I can do something. I am here. And he does do something. Whether or not what he does is theologically sound or clean kind of doesn't matter. Because at the end, an innocent life has been saved. And our struggling doubting characters have come to some type of conclusion. Whether or not that conclusion is going to be found in any theological text is not really the point, and I am much more okay and, and much more admiring of a film which depicts these people as they are, grappling with a situation which is well outside of their comprehension and their skill set, you could say, in the best way that they can. You know, as Father Karras says to, to Chris, uh, you know as much about possession as any priest. This is not a science. 
And yet the film still takes an objective, rational approach to these things which are not rational and which are beyond, basically. And so I think another film, if it, you know, uh, like, you know, there, there have certainly been many possession and exorcism films since this one came out. Um, you know, two of the most, I guess, popular in terms of their influence and box office success, you can think of The Last Exorcism and The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And though those took a bit more of a subjective approach, um, they, they kind of got around that or, or they took it as a different approach than Freak in the sense of The Last Exorcism was very much a, a fawed documentary. Um, so by taking that um, subjective approach, by putting you know, us as the audience in the situation, by having that shaky cam, by having that um, narrow perspective or, or, or a point of view, um, it does allow for a bit more of that um, spirituality to, to play out, the good versus evil, the, the, the intervention of an outside good force that allows that to happen. And when it comes to the exorcism of Emily Rose, um, they frame it as a, as a kind of courtroom drama. So basically the stories that we are hearing of this exorcism are coming from the point of people who are relying on memory, basically. And though there are depictions of what happens, you also kind of have to have it in the back of your mind that these depictions, these recollections are coming through the skewed lens of witness testimony. And anyone can tell you who is an expert on, on you know, courtroom dramas or, you know, how, how, how those things shake out. Um, eyewitness testimony is one of the least reliable pieces of evidence when it comes to um, criminal convictions and cases and stuff like that. So those films build in a subjectivity um, to give you the, the leeway to kind of sit back and relax so when there is a, a, you know, um, an, a clear intervention of a spiritual force of goodness, the, the film has made room for that. The Exorcist does not make room for that. The Exorcist only makes room for the people who are here and going through these experiences. And it's that approach which I think allows this film to be so resonant, so powerful, and so enduring um, almost 50 years after its release. So, um, Always curious to hear what people's thoughts are, especially when it comes to a film like this, which has been in the pop culture zeitgeist for such a long time. You can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com, tweet at me at nolanfixesteeth, or um, you know, feel free to uh, chime in in the comments fields by going to battleshipretention.com, finding I Do Movies Badly in the drop-down menu, or going to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. But um, that does it for this uh, episode on The Exorcist. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering Frailty, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 